0: Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.
1: Hello and welcome to Babbage, The Economist's weekly podcast on technology and science. I'm the host, Kenneth Kukie, a senior editor at The Economist. And coming up on this week's show... Are seafaring nuclear power plants the future of energy?
2: They say that they've built them so tough so that if a tsunami were to lift them up and hurl them ashore, they would not leak radiation.
1: And could nature actually be thriving in some places, despite living in an age of extinction?
3: In most parts of the world, there are more species now than there were in the past, because humans are moving species around a lot.
1: But first, a revolution in battery technology could fuel the electric car industry. Electric motors currently make up a bit over 1% of vehicle sales in Britain. But some countries, like Britain and France, want to ban the sale of petrol and diesel engines by 2040. What's driving the change? Lithium-ion and the economics of scale. Our Energy and Commodities Editor, Henry Trix, joins me now to discuss. Hello, Henry. Hi there, Ken. So, Henry, we have had batteries for donkey's years. Why now? There's been an
0: extraordinary transformation in the battery industry, but it's not like a revolution. It's like a transformation, an evolution that's taken about 30 years, but steadily that battery has got cheaper, more capacity, safer, and it's evolved to this point that it's becoming essential, not just to the auto industry, but essential to the energy industry, it's quite the transformation.
1: How were batteries able to do that? Was there any technical breakthroughs that it needed to pass through in order to become as powerful as they are today, where they weren't in the past? It was a question of fine-tuning
0: the chemistry of the cathode, the anode and the electrolyte, that through a process of relentless fine-tuning has just become more powerful. There is still expected to be another big breakthrough, possibly within the next 10 or 15 years, no one really knows, but towards batteries that are substantially quicker to charge and can last for substantially longer periods and are much, much safer.
1: Henry... Is this a technology story or is this an economic story? It's a mixture of
0: both. The technology in batteries is extremely important. But where I've focused more is on the economics because there is a strange dynamic going on in the battery industry, which I've identified. And it's quite hard to see because, as I say, the information coming out of these battery companies is very limited. But what's peculiar is that, You have battery manufacturers that have large overcapacity right now. There's almost four times the amount of battery production capacity out there right now as there are electric vehicles being sold every year. The margins are incredibly low. These batteries possibly are produced at a loss. And yet all the battery companies, even though they know that prices are going to fall yet further, are enormously expanding that capacity by two or three times over the next few years. So the question is, why are they doing that? Is there going to be demand from electric vehicles and power systems sufficient to justify that expansion? Or will this be an unsustainable business?
1: Well, it could also be the case that when you have this great pool of supply, innovation will come up around the ways to apply it, and suddenly you're going to actually see a boom in areas of battery technology going in places where we didn't have batteries before. We've seen that with drones, where nobody thought that there would be a market for levitation services. Suddenly, levitation services—I've coined the term, but that's exactly what it is—the drone was able to enable. Absolutely. Even
0: before we start thinking of really futuristic uses for the battery, we can just— Bear in mind the enormous demand for more batteries that could come from electric vehicles. Do you think that the 2040 deadline to ban
1: combustible engines is realistic?
0: I don't think it's realistic. I think that by then the automakers will have found it as strange to continue producing the internal combustion engine as it would have been for people to continue making carriages in the era of the Model T Ford.
1: Fine. So let me press you a little bit further on that then. When do you think that the marketplace and their self-interest is going to kick in? Would you say 2025, 2030?
0: I think we're talking more like 2030. Yes. I write about the oil industry. And what's interesting is to see how the oil companies are increasingly beginning to see the 2030s as the time when demand for liquid fuels has really peaked and started to go down. That makes me think that the 2030s is, is, you know, more likely to be the time.
1: Makes perfect sense. Henry, thank you very much. Great. So to our listeners, where do you think that battery technology can go next? Specifically, what sort of objects that actually don't have batteries today could have batteries tomorrow with a little bit of imagination and the fact that the battery technology works so much better and is less expensive. Let us know your thoughts. We'd love to hear what you have to say. You can tweet us at Economist Radio or email us at radioeconomist.com or visit our Facebook page. Now we move from one energy source to another nuclear power. In light of the Fukushima meltdown, engineers think the better option might be to locate future power plants at sea. Now, this may seem a little bit paradoxical, given that a tsunami was the cause of the Japanese disaster. But having a floating nuclear reactor could bring many surprising benefits. Our science correspondent, Benjamin Sutherland, joins us on the line now. Benjamin, it seems a little bit ironic that people are thinking about bringing a nuclear reactor out to sea, when in fact, the water can be troubling if it swamps a reactor.
2: Absolutely. The issue at Fukushima was too much water, then not enough. The tsunami waves knocked out the traditional cooling system, but also destroyed the diesel generators, which um, unfortunately had been stored in the basement of uh, the power plant. And so they did not have a way of quickly pumping emergency cooling water. So that fact has been uh, one of the forces driving a series of efforts to actually place uh, nuclear power plants out at sea, either under the water or floating on the surface and uh, to get the power to land through a submarine cable that would uh, bring the electricity ashore. One of the efforts is uh, a French initiative their idea is to put the nuclear reactor, along with a steam generator to generate electricity, in a large steel cylinder about a hundred meters long. Sink it in water about a hundred meters deep.
1: And so, what are the Russians doing? Because it's quite different from what the French are doing.
2: Absolutely. So, Russians and Chinese are working on a different approach, which is just to have the nuclear power plants floating offshore. And Russia, in fact, is pretty far along. They're expecting to start up a nuclear floating barge named the Academic Lomonosov in 2019. And the plan is to tow it into the East Siberian Sea and anchor it behind a breakwater about 200 meters from a town by the name of Pavek.
1: What are the benefits of putting the power plant out at sea? A lot
2: of it is cost. The uh, The cost of the civil engineering for a site on land is just massive. In fact, according to some estimates, it's 50 to 65% of the entire cost. You eliminate that essentially out at sea and you shift the process from civil engineering to factory serial production. And uh, The conditions out at sea just don't vary nearly as much as they do on land, especially if you're placing these at 100 meters depth. Uh, Those conditions are pretty much constant all around the globe, no matter
1: whatever the latitude is. Right. And what are the downsides? Surely there are some fairly significant problems that we need to be thinking about, including tsunamis and stray icebergs, where that's relevant.
2: Yes, absolutely. So one by one, icebergs, that, that is an issue. But the technology to track icebergs and and defend offshore oil and and gas drilling equipment from icebergs, there's actually a little industry in place to work on that. And in a lot of locations, say the South China Sea, that's not going to be a problem. As far as uh, tsunamis, let's take a look at uh, the first Russian. They're planning to have that behind a breakwater number one. And number two, they say that they've built them so tough so that if a tsunami were to lift them up and hurl them ashore, they would not leak radiation. That sounds like a bold claim.
1: Have you seen the evidence? Is it compelling?
2: Um, I guess I'm not equipped to, uh, to analyze the, the technical drawings or the drawings that are, are out there as far as whether or not it would really withstand that a cynic would say that they have every interest in the world to uh, convince people that that's the case but uh, i guess other experts
1: would have to come in and and say if that's realistic or not thanks benjamin finally experts have given warning that humans are driving the so-called sixth extinction in earth's history loss of habitat climate change and hunting are some of the many causes but although many species are becoming extinct, biodiversity in some places is higher than it was in the past. The economist Oliver Morton has reviewed several new books on the topic, and he joins me now in the studio. Hello, Ali. Hi, Ken. Ali, first, tell us, what do we mean by these eras of mass extinction and what the sixth is?
3: When people started looking at the history of life on Earth as preserved in fossils with a new sort of like statistical rigor in the 1980s, there came this idea that it wasn't just a question of there being gaps in the record and sometimes things looking bunched up. There really were events in the Earth's past where over 50% of the species then living had all died at the same time. And that idea has been linked to the fact that at the moment humans are driving a very large number of extinctions compared to the average rate at which species go extinct.
1: But the world can cope with it. it it's a living system and has a system it can adapt.
3: Well, yes and no. I mean, the big five mass extinctions are, yes, they don't drive all life extinct because we're here. So yes, yeah, survivable. But you know, in the same way that your house burning down and all of your family dying is survivable if you've survived. It's not Something you'd go for.
1: Fair enough. So if we're going to destroy the wetlands in Brazil and we're going to learn lose some species, how alarmed should we be that species are dying out?
3: Well, this is one of the things that these two books that I was reviewing bring out very nicely, in that those are really bad things. At the same time, they don't seem to be certainly as yet similar in scope to these mass extinctions and. I'm particularly interested in the arguments actually in a book called Inheritors of the Earth by Chris Thomas, which points out that in most parts of the world, there are more species now than there were in the past because humans are moving species around a lot. And so that means that in many places, even though some species have gone extinct, there are more species than there used to be. Now, for most environmentalists, this isn't particularly good news because they think that These will be invasive species that will do damage and that you'll lose the original character of the ecosystems in specific regions and that you're still just sort of like whistling around the fact that some species genuinely are going extinct. But Thomas argues that there's more to it than that.
1: Well, why is there more to it than that? It sounds to me like there's a philosophical interest that we like diversity for diversity's sake. Is there a scientific reason why a more diverse species environment is better than a less diverse one?
3: In some cases, there's evidence that, yes, a more diverse environment is better than others. I don't think you can necessarily take it as the utterly general rule at some because you have a sort of like resilience in a more diverse system. But at the same time, what Thomas points out really interestingly is that in these diverse systems, you will see new evolution. So you will see different species.
1: Do we have any sense of what we've lost on the other side of the ledger? Of course, it would be preposterous to suggest, oh, there used to be a plant that the natives used to chew, and they never had instances of heart attacks and cancer. Had we only preserved this plant, we would have been able to cure our ailments. That would be fanciful. But do we have any sense that there is something that we've given up by not being better stewards of our environment?
3: Well, yeah, big animals, basically. I mean, the big thing that we've... Uh... But that's
1: sentimental. We, we might No, it's like... not
3: sentimental. And even if it was sentimental, who cares? The things that humans have done that have removed the most diversity from the world is wipe out big animals in you know, over most of the planet. There used to be elephants everywhere, you know, there used to be giant ground sloths, there used to be all sorts of stuff. And as humans spread over the planet, those guys went away. That changes ecosystems a lot, right? Because those guys are like push over trees and things like that in ways that ways ways that actually matter. I kind of resist your idea that you want to value biodiversity purely in terms of use value. I think the use value arguments for biodiversity have various Problems. One is that they're very hard to actually stand up because, as you say, you can't see the counterfactuals. What use would have been the thing that you destroyed that you don't know what the use of was? But the other thing is that if you put a great effort onto sort of like valuing ecosystem services and things like that, then you're vulnerable to the problem that if someone comes up with a way to do things differently, your only response is to say, OK, we do it differently. So, for example, if start stressing the ecosystem value of insects will pollinate, then people come up with self-pollinating plants and say, so, the insects now? I think it's really important to have a sense of the intrinsic value of these things, not just a sense of the use value.
1: I would agree with that. I don't think that I'm being only practical when I look at biodiversity. I don't necessarily see a amorality when a meteorite smashes into Earth and destroys dinosaurs. And I think it's maybe sad that a living being has died, but I don't pine for the dinosaur. So I'm wondering, should we presume that there is an amorality when Polynesian seafarers go to another island and a rat eats a bird? I sort of think that that's the living, breathing element of life.
3: Sure. Um, And that's true. But I think humans have the option of behaving differently from asteroids, I'm not saying we should blame Polynesians or blame our own hunter-gatherer ancestors for all the extinctions out there. I'm not saying that we should at all times and in all places try and conserve at the expense of the quite reasonable desire of many people who live pretty grotty lives to try and have better lives. What I am saying is that it's quite reasonable to look at the options for doing so with less impact on biodiversity rather than more.
1: Ollie, thank you very much. You're very welcome, Ken. That's all for this week's episode of Babbage. Don't forget, if you have any thoughts, comments or suggestions about what you've heard in the program, please get in touch via Twitter at Economist Radio or email radio at economist.com. If you like our journalism, please do subscribe and you can do so by going to subscription.economist.com. Regarding the famous book giveaway of the last two episodes, we've received well over 100 emails from people who told us what they think about the program, and we appreciate your comments, and we are now going to be shipping out the book. So thank you very much. In London, this is The Economist.
3: Hi, this is Matt. And Sean. From Two Black Guys. With good credit. If you own or operate a business